When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are the biggest changes in the One Piece live-action series? Welcome back to Nerdist News! I'm Dan Casey, and I'm gonna be King of the Pirates! I don't know, I'm not stretchy enough, so like maybe a duke or something, because I'm not quite sure how pirate monarchies work. Regardless, the great age of pirates has truly begun, because Netflix's live-action One Piece adaptation is here at long last. And honestly, it's pretty good. One Piece seemingly broke the Netflix live-action anime curse by weaving a refreshing and original take on the source material that's enticing to both longtime fans and newcomers alike, and most importantly, to series creator Eiichiro Oda. He was involved intimately throughout the entire process. While the first season follows a rough adaptation of the arcs and events of the anime's East Blue saga, the live-action series makes several changes and, dare we say, improvements on the source material. So, if you're a new fan to the adventures of Luffy and the Straw Hat Pirates and you're curious about what got lost in translation, or if you're a longtime fan with a healthy skepticism about this new live-action counterpart, we've got you covered with a breakdown of the biggest differences that we found in this new show. Now, this will, of course, require major spoilers for both the live-action show and the original source material. So, if you don't want to have anything spoiled, I suggest you make like Buggy and split. Now, that's a laugh. I said that's a laugh. I said... Anyway, let's get into it, shall we? Since we're on the subject of Buggy the Clown, let's start off with everybody's favorite red-nosed pirate. But now that you mention it, is that thing for real? The core of Buggy's original role in this early arc of One Piece remains mostly the same. The clown pirate and his circus-themed crew have taken over a small town, but the adaptation does make a few changes to scale down some of the action. The whole arc is almost entirely confined to the circus tent headquarters that Buggy set up in Orangetown. This means there's no subplot with Mayor Boodle and Shushu defending the pet food store, aka the saddest dog story, since that one episode of Futurama that always makes you cry. You know the one I'm talking about. I won't be gone long, Seymour. Just wait here till I come back. Don't worry, though. Boodle and his iconic hairdo still appear heavily in Episode 2 with the rest of the town being held captive. Even Shushu gets a tiny cameo during Luffy's send-off at the end of the episode. Unfortunately, this also means we get far less action from Buggy's henchmen, Kabaji and Moji. And Moji's pet lion, Richie, is missing entirely. And where, oh where, was the dancing... Lion. The real difference for Buggy, however, comes in his expanded role beyond Orangetown. Buggy definitely goes on to have a long-running presence in the world of One Piece. But as far as the East Blue Saga goes, Buggy kinda disappears for a bit after his initial battle with Luffy. He reappears later on towards the end of the saga as the Straw Hats prepare to enter the Grand Line during their last stop in Logetown. The live-action series, however, incorporates Buggy throughout the season, making him this fun and endearing throughline. Actor Jeff Ward perfectly toes that line between funny, dark, and threatening that makes Buggy such a fan-favorite character and one of the best changes to the Netflix adaptation. Hey, so, um, I'm gonna get out of here. The pirates are coming! The pirates are coming! 
Moving on to Syrup Village, we really start to see some more large-scale changes. Firstly, while Usopp as a character is perfectly spot on thanks to Jacob Romero's excellent performance, there is one major absence. NOSE! No, not Usopp's Pinocchio-ass nose, the Usopp pirates are what I'm talking about. They don't call him Captain Usopp for nothing. You're not. The great Captain Usopp will protect you. Usopp wasn't a crew of one as we saw in the live action. Rather, he led a trio of tiny followers, Tamanegi, Pimon, and Ninjin. This scrappy crew of local children was a small but instrumental part of Usopp's introduction in the anime and manga. Because not only did they assist the Straw Hats in protecting the village from Kuro and his black cat pirates, but they served as a much needed emotional core to Usopp's journey and growth as a character. However, like Buggy in Orangetown, the action of Syrup Village was likewise scaled back to a mostly singular location and a much smaller cast. In the original version, Kuro's plot involved his old crew arriving to attack the village after he had faked his death and gone into hiding for several years, acting as Kaya's butler, Clahador. However, Kuro's plan to kill Kaya and inherit her wealth had another part in the source material. It was revealed during his battle with Luffy that Kuro intended to kill his entire crew as well to continue his life in hiding. And this treachery and disregard for his crew is a core moral conflict that ultimately fuels Luffy's motivation to defeat Kuro. In the Netflix series, we get a somewhat abridged version of this plan, with not only Kuro, but two of his henchmen, Bucci and Sham, also impersonating members of Kaya's staff. Sham and Bucci! Together we are the Meowban brothers! At your service! While the goal is ultimately the same, the rest of the Black Cat crew is absent from the plot. Kuro's backstory is left a bit more vague and unexplained here. Axe Hand Morgan is still the one who's credited with taking down the Black Cat Pirates and capturing Kuro, but we don't get the full story of how Kuro faked his death. In the original story, Kuro's former first mate Django is instrumental to pulling off this scheme. Using his powers of hypnosis, Django made a look-alike believe that he was actually Kuro, and Morgan believed that he was the hero who captured him. It's also because of this battle that Morgan sustained the injuries that led to him getting his iconic metal chin and axe hand. Otherwise, he'd be regular Fist Morgan. Not as exciting. While there's sadly no live-action Django to be found backwards walking through Syrup Village this season, part of his wanted poster can be spotted in episode 1. So, it's very possible we could see him eventually. In fact, Django has an expanded role in the source material as well. He befriended the Marine Iron Fist Fullbody, who we see only briefly in episode 5 during the Baratier arc, and ends up becoming a Marine himself. Kuro, on the other hand, doesn't have much of a recurring presence in the source material compared to other villains in the series, and basically disappears completely after Syrup Village. However, given Kuro's new cliffhanger ending of him rowing away in live action, it's very possible we could see him in live action Django pop up in season two. This would be a major departure from the source material. My best guess is we could maybe see them added into the action at Logetown with Buggy and Alveda. Or perhaps we could see Django introduced as a Marine while Kuro somehow weaves into Baroque works, but more on them in just a little bit. Let's eat! Next up, let's talk about Baratier, which is probably the most altered arc from the source material. Firstly, like Syrup Village, some supporting characters are tragically missing, namely Zoro's former bounty hunting friends, Johnny and Yosaku. It's not really a huge loss story-wise. This duo mostly just offers comedic relief from the sidelines rather than anything consequential to the plot. But they do offer a bit of fun backstory and world-building for Zoro's character prior to joining the Straw Hat crew. It's similar to Usopp's pint-sized pirates in Syrup Village, but a little bit different. 
More glaringly, though, the original version of this story centered around a much different antagonist, with the Baratier being attacked by the pirate Captain Don Krieg rather than Arlong. The Netflix series does include Krieg in a brief moment during Mihawk's introduction, but it's more of a glorified cameo than anything else. Now, admittedly, Krieg's probably the weakest villain of the East Blue Saga from a story standpoint. The character really only serves as a measuring stick for Luffy's power scaling, with no real personal connection to any of the main characters in the same way the rest of the saga's villains have. So, the decision to change things for a more narratively-driven condensed version works much more in the live-action show's favor here out of all the other arcs. Basically, the Baratier in the original story is this chaotic point in the East Blue Saga. There is a lot of stuff going on at once. The Straw Hats arrive at Baratier, Sanji gets introduced, he feeds Gin, Gin returns with a starved and weakened Krieg, and after being fed, Krieg attacks the restaurant wanting to use it to return to the Grand Line. Mihawk then shows up in pursuit of Krieg, Zoro challenges Mihawk, Luffy dukes it out with Krieg and his crew, and amid all of the chaos of this happening, Nami takes off with the Going Merry, betraying the Straw Hats and setting up the next arc. Instead, the live-action show wisely chooses to focus on three main character beats. Number one, Sanji's introduction, establishing his personality, his values, his motivation through backstory, and ultimately his relationship with the Straw Hats. Number two, Zoro's challenge to Mihawk, furthering his motivation to become the world's greatest swordsman, and consequently showing how far he still has to go to attain that dream. At the same time, it solidifies his dedication to Luffy in pursuit of it. And finally, number three, Nami's reckoning with the emotional conflict of her new feelings for the Straw Hats, as she is ultimately forced to betray them so she can protect them. Now, admittedly, when early trailers seemed to indicate that Arlong would be replacing Krieg at Baratier, it was a little concerning how things might pan out. But seeing it in action, it's another brilliant change that culminates into a much more cohesive and streamlined arc that feels more organically woven into the overall narrative of this saga. And that brings us to the final arc of the season, Arlong Park. Though the core arc itself is largely the same as the source material, the character of Arlong, like Buggy, gets an expanded role across the live-action story. In the anime, Arlong only comes into the picture during the Baratie arc in the form of a wanted poster that Nami finds after they encounter Johnny and Yosaku. But even then, we don't know much about him until after Baratie, when the rest of the crew follows after Nami and we formally enter the Arlong Park arc. Oh my god, say that five times fast. Use Arlong Park arc. It's, I feel insane. Anyway, the live action series does a much better job here of establishing Arlong early on as the big bad of the East Blue and the ultimate end game for the season. Much in the same way later villains in the series like Crocodile would be introduced and encountered earlier on in a particular saga before their final showdown with Luffy, it seems like Oda Sensei wanted to use this opportunity to retroactively turn Arlong into a similarly long game villain for the East Blue Saga. This change allowed for some fun original interactions between Arlong and some other characters like Bucky and Zeph. And it also helped to build the world of East Blue and make it feel more interconnected rather than the more compartmentalized nature of the source material for this saga. With that said though, the most egregious omission in the Arlong Park arc, and dare I say the whole season, is the absence of the best character in all of One Piece, and that is Momu. <laughs> If we can't get a giant adorable sea cow, what's the point? We want answers, Netflix. We want answers. Hey, stop! Where are you going? Get back here, Momo! You can't just leave! <laughs> 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 
Moving on, let's talk about some of the changes that went beyond the confines of the Source Material's opening saga. One of the best aspects of this new series for longtime One Piece fans is the way the show manages to plant seeds for things to come should the series continue. From simple Easter eggs like wanted posters for characters like Bellamy and Foxy, to major lore teases like Nami reading Zoro the story of Montblanc Noland and the City of Gold. There are a ton of moments that will have fans pointing at their TV, like Leonardo DiCaprio. More like One Piece Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now that's a laugh. I said that's a laugh. <clears throat> One of the biggest and most overt of these early references is to Baroque Works. This shadowy organization plays a major role in the source material's epic saga after East Blue. And this isn't just a subtle Easter egg, I mean, they literally mention it right away. Baroque Works tries to recruit Zoro, and that's how we meet the character in the live action show. You should know it's a high honor to be asked to join our ranks. Kinda got my own thing going on. And while this scene is somewhat of an original creation for the live action show, it does have its roots in the source material. During the Whiskey Peak arc, when Baroque Works is formally introduced in the manga and anime, Zoro mentions that he had been asked to join in his pirate hunting days. And like the Netflix series, he politely declined. <laughs> well, sorry. Polite might be a bit of an overstatement because... However, that moment in Baroque Works as an entity aren't mentioned until over 100 chapters into the manga. Instead, we're getting Baroque Works episode one of this adaptation. And that's a very exciting way to lay the groundwork for this major threat to come. And Zoro's introduction isn't the only connection either. Later in that same episode, we learn that Garp and the Marines have been pursuing Baroque Works as well. It's a great way to further establish this crime syndicate as a major player in the world of the live action show. And while that's unfortunately the last we hear of Baroque works for the time being, it's definitely a nice teaser for what's to come should this series get renewed for a season two. This is Garp. And speaking of Garp, that brings us to our final and arguably biggest change in this new adaptation. While he was a major presence in the live action series, newer fans unfamiliar with the anime or manga might be surprised to learn that Vice Admiral Garp is a character that does not appear until well after the East Blue Saga. Not only that, but the truth regarding his identity as Luffy's grandpa. Grandpa? Grandpa? wasn't revealed until even later in the source material during the post-Aeneas lobby arc of the Water 7 saga. What? That's over 400 chapters into the manga to put things in perspective. What? Now, this decision to incorporate Garp early on into Luffy's journey for the live action show is arguably one of the best ideas they had. Showrunner Steven Maeda even spoke about it in a recent interview with Collider. A manga and a TV show are both telling stories, but in a very, very different way and in a different structure. So we had to discuss pulling things forward and pushing things back and adding elements that are in the manga, but not until much later chapters. For example, the Marines. You know, Garp, who's after Luffy and Kobe and Helmeppo, and that story isn't in the first 100 chapters of the manga. It comes in around chapter 300 or something that they show up. And I thought I really wanted to have stakes and antagonists with teeth who are not just the kind of pirate antagonists that they were going to run into. So I really wanted to push this idea that the Marines were hot on their trail. But why? It's like, what's the important thing about this kid? 
And that makes a lot of sense, because in the source material, the Marines kind of fall into the background after the Romance Dawn arc. You get brief appearances by characters like Fullbody and Baratier and Nazumi during Arlong Park, but they don't really feel like a direct threat to the Straw Hats. They're like minor threats in the background that just happen to be there to contrast the main pirate action. It's really not until Logetown in the introduction of Smoker, who was also teased during the Netflix show's final scene, that we get a more formal Marine antagonist to Luffy and the Straw Hats in the manga and anime. And even then, his interest in Luffy and their relationship develops slowly over time. So starting off with Garp instantly creates these much more personal stakes, and that works really well for the Netflix show. And it should transition nicely when they up the ante when Smoker formally enters the picture in season two. Introducing Garp so early gives us the added bonus as well of spending more time with Kobe. Kobe is another character who kinda disappears after his intro in the early chapters of the manga. Eventually, he comes back into the picture later on with Garp. Given how connected Kobe's story is with Luffy, it's great to see the parallels of their early growth through the East Blue Saga in a more direct and substantial way than what we got in the source material. So all in all, this series really proved that change isn't always a bad thing, and it showcased how that can often be a strength when it comes to adaptation. One Piece as a franchise is this unparalleled achievement in long-form storytelling, and the live-action series wisely set out to not merely retread what came before it, but rather to boldly chart its own course into the East Blue and beyond. Using the insight and benefit of two decades of story, the showrunners in Eiichiro Oda have crafted something that honors the source material while often improving on it to form something that's new, exciting, and full of possibility. Anyway, folks, there you have it. Those are the biggest changes we could find in the live-action One Piece series. But tell us, what did you think of the Netflix show? What were some of your favorite Easter eggs? And what are you looking forward to most in the second season, and why did you say Tony Tony Chopper? Anyway, let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.